John chapter 14, been in it for uh, a few weeks, a couple weeks, a few weeks now, and uh, perhaps finish the chapter this morning. I'm not making any promises. <laughs> you guys know me, don't you? Uh, but we've been in the upper room. John chapter 13 begins what we call the upper room discourse, and John chapter 14 is a continuation. Remember, we looked at that because Peter got really hung up in chapter 13. He said, what do you mean you're leaving, Jesus? I, I don't get that. We're supposed to be helping you set up your kingdom and all of that. And, and, and then he begins chapter 14 with, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled by this. I'm doing something you don't understand. And, and we talked last week, you really couldn't expect these guys to understand because when you subtract the cross, you subtract the resurrection from the dialogue that's going on here because we know it. We've seen the story. We've read it. We've heard it all our lives, many of us. But this was totally new for these guys. And so they're just totally stressed on this thing. Peter didn't even hear the part about the greatest commandment to, to love one another the way I've loved you. He, he just couldn't wait to get back to Jesus on this thing about what do you mean you're leaving? No, I'll go. Uh, oh, hey, I, you know, I'm good. I actually, I'm better than these other guys. We looked in the other gospels. Remember, we blended the gospels on that. And, and so, and Jesus is just so loving with him uh, into the, the beginning of chapter 14, where he says, uh, and he's talking to all of the guys, but he's directing it at Peter and saying, Pete, don't let your heart be troubled over this. Uh, really, in my father's house, there are many mansions. We talked about that. I believe a poor translation because it really is abiding places or dwelling places. We'll look at that again this morning because the exact same word is used further. The Greek word uh, for mansions is used again here, a couple of other places that, uh, that we can look at because he, he's kind of tying things together for these guys. He's connecting the dots, as it were, and, and allowing them to come to a deeper understanding. But he also knows that they won't come to a, a complete understanding of who he is and what he's about until the Holy Spirit is given. Uh, we're going to look at that a little bit this morning, the in, or the with, and the in, and then the upon uh, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in more depth in chapters 15, especially in 16, when we get into the real meat of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the threefold work of the Spirit in our lives and in theirs. But here, he's still dealing with these guys. They have a partial understanding. We've looked at that before. Is that he often had, he would lay out a spiritual truth that is here, and then people would get to about here, and then they would stop being able to grasp. And his whole thing is to bring them to a deeper, uh, more complete faith in him, to, to believe uh, so, and when he says this father's house thing, I, you know, when he says in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I, uh, Harvey mentioned in, in the Revelation study recently about, uh, about the New Jerusalem and being uh, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And uh, the measurements are given there in the book of Revelation as far as my father's house. Uh, it's 1,500 miles cubed. And that's very hard for us to grasp. I mean, when I was a Mormon, I, growing up in the Mormon church, they said that the, the New Jerusalem was going to be at Temple Lot in Missouri, I think. And when you look at the math, it really doesn't calculate out real well. Uh, it actually turns out to, I, did, I ran it on my calculator, I got carried away on my 10 key the other night. Uh, it's 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. Kind of hard to grasp, huh? 
Anyway, last week we also looked at when Jesus, those, those uh, interesting statements, when he said, greater things will you do. And we talked about that. Greater in power? No, I don't think so. There is nothing that man has ever done that is greater, demonstrates a greater power that Jesus has. It's a very mistranslated passage uh, where people, you know, it's like they want to see lightning bolts shoot off of their fingers. I think about Simon the Magician in, Luke, or in uh, Acts chapter 8 when he says, hey guys, come on, let me buy some of that power. And, and the, the apostles, your, your money perish with you. You have so missed what God's doing here. And, and, and so it's not greater in power because nobody has ever exercised more power than the Lord himself. But greater in extent is what he's indicating. We looked at, again, in Acts chapter 2, where Peter, just having received the Holy Spirit, stands up, preaches the gospel, and just pokes at the people, says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And 3,000 people come to faith in Christ that day contrasted to when the law was given and Moses had the Levites march through the camp and slay the people that were responsible, how many people died? 3,000. Yeah, I'd love to go into that more, but uh, I will, I'm not going to rabbit trail. <laughs> so, Anyway, so greater in power, but not in extent. And then we looked at what Jesus said. He says, anything you ask in my name, I'll do it. And what a bold statement that is, and, and again, very misunderstood and mistranslated in many circles, and yet we see that that is absolutely a true statement because when we pray in his name, what are we praying according to? We're praying according to, and we looked at six statements about that last week as we wrapped up, but we're praying according to God's character, we're praying according to God's will, if we know it, and sometimes we're praying for his will, uh, and we're praying according to his word. And as we pray that and we yield to him in it and say, Lord, just like Jesus in the garden, it's not about me. It's not about my will, but it's about your will. And as we're praying in accordance with not my will, but yours be done, we can absolutely rest assured, take it to the bank, be absolutely guaranteed he will answer my prayers. Because he's a good and a loving and a kind and true God. We looked at that. There's no falsehood in him at all. It's impossible for God to have anything false inside of him. So these guys were, you know, they were looking at all of this stuff and, and they're still scratching their heads and uh, all of that. I want to pick up in verse 14. Uh, we stopped at verse 14, but I'm going to read it again to, just to catch the flow here of what's going on as we move through this. And I'm just going to read through the whole thing uh, for a few verses and then we'll stop and unpack it a bit. In verse 14, he says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So as I mentioned, we looked at these, these six things about that last week. I'm not going to go through it again, but uh, again, uh, just fascinating how we see, especially in, in some of the hyper-charismatic circles out there where, where people take these things and they put a carnal uh, interpretation on it and they try to make God's word say what they want it to say because they come with a preconceived idea. All right, Good biblical exposition is called exegesis. It means to exegete. It means to allow the Bible to speak, to come to it with a preconceived idea, and I was raised in it. 
in a false religion, you come with a preconceived idea and you try to make the Bible say what you want it to say. That's called eisegesis. And it's very, very bad scholarship. And, and people are misled. People can miss heaven as a result uh, when that's used on major doctrines. So in, in verse 14, when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So who is he saying will do it? He says he will do it. Not if you ask anything in my name, you can do it. As I know that in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. There's nothing good in me that I have to yield to the working of the Spirit. So that begs the question, well, then how will he do it? Now, I want you to follow me here. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, he's not talking about a works-based salvation. Don't, don't get me wrong on this and don't take him wrong because he clarifies in verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So what he's saying here is love, it's, love is not, it's not like an empty sentiment. It's, it's not just the emotions. And I love the emotion, the emotional aspect of love. I love my wife. I love the emotional connection that we have. And yet he's talking about something far deeper than that. He's saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, that you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because that's part of what happens in what? A relationship. See, we don't look at Jesus as like some mascot that we put on a flag and put in the center of the stage. It's not like Jesus is this impersonal force. He says, I want a personal relationship. And through that personal relationship, it'll be a love relationship. Because I love you, I put feet to my words. I, there's action that follows my love. He's getting ready to act out of the love that he has for these guys. Within hours, he will be on that cross. And so he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, the proof that you love me will be that you want to follow me, that you choose to obey me. Uh, and you know, I, I, when people sometimes they talk about obedience, uh, I, I may have mentioned it before. Uh, it's not this thing like you see a guy that he, maybe he's doing a show and, and he's got a pet dog and the dog's jumping through hoops and doing all this other stuff and he pops a treat in his mouth every now and then. You, you ever see that? You know, and it, it's like he does it so quickly. It's like, wow, did he, did he just do that? That's not how Jesus is with us. It's not like he's, well, if you obey me, I'll pop a little treat in your mouth. No, it's a voluntary thing. You've heard me say before, the only thing that he ever, ever, ever asks of us is that we simply show up. What does that mean? Well, when I show up, it means I'm availing myself of his agenda for my life. And what his agenda for my life is looks a little bit different for all of us, doesn't it? And yet it's good. It's healthy. It's connected to the source. To who? To Jesus himself. How? Through the Holy Spirit. How are you going to be able to ask things in his name? How can you do that without knowing exactly what it is? He goes on and he says, look, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll give you another helper. I'll give you a paraclete. That's the Greek word, and it means one to come alongside of. It's actually a hard word to translate. It means that if you're a lawyer and you need witnesses, he's going to be the one that comes to witness. He's the paraclete. If you're somebody that is organizing something, you don't have enough physical labor. They're the ones that are going to come alongside to do that. If you're the one that, and kind of fill in the blank, if there's a need, he's the one that's going to fill it. That's what that word means. And so when he's telling these guys here, I'll give you another helper, he's saying very simply, I have been the one who has helped you. I have been the one who has been giving you divine revelation for these three and a half years that we've been together. 
And now I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to be with the Father. I'm not just leaving you, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. We'll get into that. But I'm going to prepare a place so that when I have completed this work, and when I'm finished with you, that I can pull you, I can take you to that place that I'm preparing. In the meantime, I'm preparing you for that place, and there's a lot of work to do, and you're going to have to really be connected to me in order to carry it off, because there's no way you could do it in the arm of the flesh. There's no way you could do it in your own power, in your own strength. That's a primary part of the work of the Holy Spirit within, for them, also for us, for you and I. Interesting that, that he, um, in this verse, he says that he'll be with you forever. I like that. You know, I, I, I think about that. I think about the security that's in that. I think about divine revelation. And I don't know. I, I look in, in 1 Corinthians 13 where uh, Paul, the apostle, is talking about love. And then he gets to that end of the, the end of that chapter. And he says, you know, then... Now we see it in a glass or a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we have in part, but then we'll have the complete. And I wonder, is there going to be a continuing revelation? Because he being omniscient, having all knowledge, and communicating knowledge to us as we go, is that going to continue on into heaven? Or will we just automatically know? I don't know. But I love the fact that he says, the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. And, and, and there's great comfort in that because we need help. I don't know about you. I got hit with some circumstances yesterday that uh, came out of the blue and I, and I began to strive and I began to wonder, Lord, what are you doing in this? And, and I, I was just troubled. And, and it, it, sometimes the Lord kind of has you live your sermons. <laughs> And, and I remember looking at that yesterday, and I'm looking at this, and at one point, Stacy was gone. She'd gone down into town for some things, and, and I was all by myself in the house. I was up in my study, up on the second story of our house, and, and I just started to laugh, and I said, that's what you're doing, Lord, out loud. Somebody probably would have thought I was nuts if they were in the other room, but I'm in there, and I'm talking, because I'm studying this, and I'm saying, Lord, I need help on these circumstances that you just allowed to be delivered up to us. And... and and I just, I began to smile inside and to realize, you know what, that's what he is doing. What, and we'll talk about that because there are two gifts that he gives in this chapter. He gives, number one, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And number two, the gift of his peace. Uh, and if I don't step on it, we're not going to get there. So, uh, But the point is, these two things that he's imparting to us in their primary aspects of the working of God in my life. Without the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to get anywhere. And without his peace, I'm going to be bowled over my by my circumstances before I even get a chance to get started. Verse 17, he says, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The with, the in, and the upon of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Very important to understand that. Prior to someone's coming to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. The Holy Spirit is there. He's with that person. He's convicting them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He is with. He is there to prod them on and to show them the lack, perhaps, in their life, to show them the futility of this life lived away from God, to show them that there's more. There is an answer to why am I here and what was I created for? And he's the one that is, that is just, again, there, not beating people up, 
but there to say, look, you need God. You need to understand what this is about. You need me. And that's the with as he comes alongside and he begins to just, uh, I remember being in that place and, and being in just a, a dark time of my life and, and just that hunger that was coming that I, I'd read part of my Bible and it didn't fit with the, the religion that I was in. And I, I just remember being hungry. And I, I see that now as the Holy Spirit was with me and he was prompting me and showing me that I needed to know more. I needed to go further. And then there's the end. We look in John chapter 20 here, after the resurrection where Jesus breathes on his disciples. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Uh, it wasn't Pentecost. It was a separate experience. That was when the Holy Spirit came into them. He had atoned for sin. And he came into them and he began now to illuminate their thinking. Remember, uh, I shared recently about the guys on the road to Emmaus and how blown away they were as Jesus opened their minds. That's part of the work that he does as he is in us. He says, I will come in and I'll actually set up house. We'll talk about that. And then there's the upon. They're 50 days out from uh, when Jesus had become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And there he is uh, 50 days out at the upper room. The guys are there in the same room where they're in now. And the Holy Spirit is given, and it's nine o'clock in the morning, and everybody starts thinking that because they're speaking in these weird languages that they're drunk. And says, Wait a minute, it's only 9 a.m. And yet we see there that when the Holy Spirit was given and that the upon of the Holy Spirit's ministry came, that it was given to give them power, but not power in a vacuum, not power. I see, again, I see so much abuse, and it's just, it just grieves me but the power to live, the power to carry out the work that each of us is called to carry out. And we each are called. We have each been given the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile a fallen and dying and largely dead world to Jesus. We can't do that in our own strength. We don't have the ability. But as the Spirit comes upon us, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you will, there's different names. And I don't want to divide over characterizations, but there is a real event. There is a real time of being filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped for ministry, equipped for service. And that's why he does it. He doesn't give gifts and visions in a vacuum. He gives them for service. And so here at the very genesis of these things, at the very beginning of these things, we see uh, these 11 men in this room with Jesus. Judas had gone out into the night. He's in the process of betraying the Lord. And so Jesus is with his men. He's having these intimate times. He is just a very short time from going to the garden and then everything moving along as it will. And we'll look at that when we get there. So I want to take a few minutes and, and talk about what does this in you look like? And, and I want to go to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to just read about six verses there. And um, in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul has some really good things to say. Hang on a second. In Colossians 3, this is a letter that was written about 30 years after these events. Uh, the Apostle Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome, chained to a Praetorian guard, uh, and those guys kept getting saved. That was interesting. Um, chained to a, a Roman guard, and, and in, in Rome, he writes this letter to this church in Colossae. And, and as he's writing it, he knows there's a lot of troubles in that church. It was plagued with false doctrine, some false teachers trying to come in. 
and a lot going on there. And in chapter 3, he says, therefore, and we'll look at the therefore in a second, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. So what does he mean, therefore, uh, if you look before that, and I didn't want to get too far down this particular path uh, in, in expounding on it, but the therefore is he's been telling them to put off the old man, put off that, that, that man of flesh, and put on the new man, the, the new man who's been renewed, who's been imparted life, put on the new nature in that sense. And well, how does that come about? It comes about by appropriating the work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. And so when he's saying put on, he's talking about put on, essentially put on the Holy Spirit, because he's the only way you're going to be able to carry these things out, as I mentioned. And so the, the fact that the people are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is assumed in this passage. And I'm, it's not going to say Holy Spirit here, but we know that he's talking to the elect of God. And if you are the elect of God, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit. And so he says, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Very similar. What he's talking about here is fruit. In my flesh, there no, dwells no good thing. I don't want to be long-suffering. I don't want to be meek and humble, kind, merciful. Those are things that are the fruit of his spirit. And so he's saying, put those things on, bearing with one another in verse 13, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against, an, against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So in context, we see again that there's this, this transaction has already taken place, and he's saying to put on the Holy Spirit. And, and then he gets into this thing about forgiveness and, and says, look, if you have a complaint about anybody, and if you are unforgiving in that, you need to let it go. There has you, and, and yes, relationships get dinged up, guys. Uh, I've said before, and I'll say it again, there has never been one spirit-filled marriage that has ever ended in divorce. Not once. But what happens is people put off the spiritual man take on the flesh and decide they're going to try to work this thing out on their own. I'll tell you what, it's a sure recipe for disaster in any area of our life. Yes, marriage. But in, in dealing with our children, in, in dealing with other people, and dealing in the body. Why do you think there is so much written in the New Testament towards just getting along with one another? There's a great deal of information about that here. Because I'll tell you what, if it's not for God's ability to keep us, we would cut and run. And our lives would be a mess. And he has far greater plans for us than that. Part of what he's dealing with these guys in the upper room is he's equipping them because he knows that they're going to have exceedingly difficult lives. And if they're not equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit going in, they will never get anywhere. And so it's absolutely essential what he's talking about here. So as we look at this in verse 14, he says, but above all of these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And that's the new King James. I love the way that's rendered in the New American Standard. He says, which is the perfect bond of unity. Remember what he said. Uh, look, guys, 
Here's the greatest commandment. It's not like the one where they tried to pin me down and say, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? And then he went uh, to a whole different place in the Old Testament. He said, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We talked about self-love. And no, what he says here is, I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. Carries a lot more weight. Carries a great deal more weight. And so what this passage here, looking again, 30 years down the road, what this passage is doing is Paul is exhorting this church to do the very same things that Jesus is telling his men. It's the very same stuff. I, I read this the other day when I was putting this together for, for this morning, and I thought, Oh, I, you know, I, I wonder if Paul read that. Uh, but no, John hadn't been written when Paul wrote this. And so I don't think they were comparing notes. I believe absolutely this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God because it reflects what's going on in the upper room and reflects absolutely what goes on in our lives. The, the Bible is universal in its application. It's as useful for us today as it was for these men standing in this room and as it was for Paul sitting there in Rome chained to some Roman guard writing to this church in Colossae that was having problems and encouraging them to walk by the power of the Spirit. He says in verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. And I'll tell you what, my heart wells up with gratitude at times to the point of tears because I think about, I look at that passage in Isaiah where he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and look to the pit from which you were dug. And each of us, I don't know about you, but I've got a, I've got a past. And I praise God that, that what Jesus does is he says, you know what? Just give that stuff to me. I will remember it no more. Not as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's infinite. I'm glad he didn't say, I'll remember that no more as far as the north is from the south because you can go so far north and pretty soon you're going south, aren't you? But you can't go far enough east to run into west. You can go far enough north. Anyway, I'll get all head tripping on that and we won't go anywhere. So, but he says, let the peace of God, he's talking about let the love of God be seen in your life and now let the peace of God, and we'll get into that here in John where he is saying the same thing, where Jesus is saying the same thing to his men. Because what is the fruit of his spirit? They're connected. Love. Manifesting his joy. Manifesting his peace. Manifesting his uh, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of the things, the fruit of the spirit, the ninefold fruit that we see in Galatians 5. So he says, the peace of God is yours. All you have to do is take it. You've got to receive these things in order for them to be of effect, guys. You know what? Part of the work that the Lord does with us, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is he says, you know, it's as though I am, I'm, I'm leading you, I'm pulling you. And, and you've got this, this, this whole deal out here, and I want to show you a better way to live, and, and won't you follow me? Because he never forces us. But as he is beckoning to us, and as he is working in us, and he is pulling us forward, he, he allows us the ability because he doesn't violate our will. We can hang on to that stuff behind. We can hang on to that stuff that is, that is holding us back. We can hang on to the world. And he says, no, I want to pull you forward. And, and your part is to simply let go of the world. Let go of those things that you're trying to hold on to.
I have a better way. I have a more excellent way for your life. And, and, and he loves me. And he knows that it's a process. And so in his gentleness, he does do that work of delivering us from ourselves. And it's a, it's a lifelong process. Uh, absolutely uh, encourage you once again, don't assume you know God's agenda for the person sitting next to you, spouses included. We know that his agenda is not for us to be living abject sin, but to know that his agenda for holiness, for personal, practical holiness, that process of sanctification, his agenda is his agenda. It's not the one that he has for you. So often people, I'll tell you what, it's a recipe for conflict and it's a recipe for strife in your life to assume that you know what's best for that person. Be very clear. It's a personal walk. God has his will tailored perfectly for that person and it may not be the what you want it to look like. Uh, I've shared before, I'll share it again briefly because it was so profound to me when this came home. I was at a men's camp a few years back, a number of years ago, and, and, and there was a guy that stood up as we were getting going, and, and he said, I just want to say something. And, and the guy that was leading the camp said, go ahead. And he said, I just want to ask you guys, stop getting on me about smoking cigarettes. And I just kind of hung my head, and I thought, oh, Lord, who's condemning him for that? I mean, yeah, it's a health issue and all and all that. But, uh, and he said, I just want to tell you guys something. I'm respectful. I go outside the camp and I, you know, all of that, and I'm working on that. But let me tell you something else. I was a heroin addict and God delivered me from heroin. And not only has he delivered me from heroin, he's given me my family, my wife and my kids back. And I just went, praise God. And, and you know, how foolish it is to think, well, this guy, we got to get on him about not smoking. And God's doing a whole different work that has got so much more for this man. So be careful. Understand what the will of God is for you. And that's very important. And he'll reveal it. Don't get caught up in them. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's the result of walking in love. And Jesus is telling these guys, walk in love. Paul is exhorting the church at Colossae, walk in love. And God's exhortation to us this morning is walk in love. These principles, these truths are timeless. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? We just looked at that last week in John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, so whatever you are doing, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to the God the Father through him. So doing all in the name is, is saying you're doing it consistent with the character and with the nature, the person of Jesus. How? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just give this empty formula. Hey guys, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. No, he goes on to tell them how that looks. And how that looks is walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and what you're doing and what you're asking, he'll do. Because it's something that originates in him. Back to John. In John 14, uh, verse 18, uh, Jesus goes on. He says, I will not leave you as orphans and I'll come to you. The Greek word 
uh, that John uses in, in chapter 13, verse 33. Remember, as soon as Judas had left, Jesus got very intimate, very personal with his men. And he says, little children. And he addresses them as little children. The Greek word is technia. And it, it literally, literally means little children. And, and when he says, I won't leave you as orphans, the Greek word is orphanos, and it means orphaned children. And so when he's saying, I won't leave you as orphans, he's sort of carrying along that same line of thinking that he had established uh, earlier in the conversation, earlier in the dialogue, because this is a dialogue. Remember, five guys are speaking in this, uh, even though all 11 are part of it. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you stranded. He's saying, look, and I could, I could just imagine in these guys' minds, they're going, I, I sold out everything for this guy. I, I've given up everything. I walked away from the nets. I walked away from a very prosperous business. Matthew was a tax collector. Those guys did pretty good because they were legal extortionists, <laughs> extortionists for Rome. I mean, but he said, you know, I'm not going to leave you hanging here, guys. That's where he wants to pull them forward. And remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, his mission in this, part of what he is doing in this is he is elevating these guys' thinking. He's saying, you know what? I don't want you to be thinking in earthly terms about this. Not that earthly thinking is bad necessarily, but I want to elevate your thinking to spiritual terms because it's the only way these things will make sense. And so I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to an orphanage. You're a bunch of grown men. He's not talking about literal orphans, but he is talking about orphans in the sense that they had invested in him. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. And he is saying, look, it all stops now as far as me physically, but he is continuing to pour out to them, it doesn't stop here. It's not going to stop. It's not like because I am going to go to the cross and die, then I'm going to stay dead. They couldn't know this. But what he's saying, I won't leave his orphans. When I die, you're not going to be orphaned. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will have access to me in greater measure than you had when I was here with you physically. Wonderful dynamic that he's setting up. And, and he goes on to say here, further in the chapter, that you'd be excited if you understood what all this is about. In verse 19, he says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. When the resurrection happened just a few days from now, these guys would be absolutely blown away. He would just show up in the room, didn't even knock on the door. He would just show up. And, 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 you know, again, it, when the guys at the road to Emmaus, they were sitting there eating with the guy and he revealed himself to him and he was gone because he then, he had been glorified. He had a glorified body. He knew what was ahead for these guys. They couldn't. He's trying to give them assurance, but it's falling short with these guys, but they would understand to the point. I mean, John wrote this in detail many, many years later because he went, oh, that's what he was. Have you ever done that? Oh, that's what God's been doing. Like when I laughed out loud yesterday afternoon, oh, that's what you're doing. You just laid a big trial on me right in the middle of preparing for people going through trials. Oh, that's great, Lord. But I mean, and it was good because I know that he's working at it and I, you can bank on the fact that he is faithful. He is ever faithful. So he says, because I live, you'll live. And that's true. That's because we are children of the king. People that are not 
won't. He goes on to talk about that. And that day, he says in verse 20, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You ever heard that term location, location, location? Uh, spent many years in the business world, and uh, something that's said about, about a business is it's all about location, location, location. And, and you know what? The spiritual realm, it's all about location. Uh, Jesus is saying, you know, I abide, my place is in the Father. Uh, he, he says, um, find it here, went past it. Uh, I am in the, my Father. Uh, that it, he abides in the Father. When he says, I am in the Father, it says that we abide together. And then he goes on to say, you abide in me. You're in me. And when I look at that, all right, if I am in Christ, then that, what he's saying in that is that is my standing. Our standing as believers is in Christ. We stand in him. What does that mean? It means that I belong to him. And he belongs to me. I am in Jesus. My standing is found in him. And when he says, I am in you, it means, so if you look at, if my standing as a believer is that my life is in him, and my power as a believer is because his life is in me. That makes sense? So I am in you, it's your standing. You're in me, or I, you're in me, that's your standing. I'm in you, that's your power, that's your strength. That is where you go to find the strength, to go through the things that you're going through. It's where these guys would have to go to find the strength to go through what they would, and they would go through a lot more than we probably ever will. The persecution that was coming was enormous. In the first century, the persecution was, these guys were stripped of everything. They were stripped of their ability to do business. They were stripped of their families. If they were Jews and their, their family, their family would sit Shiva. They would, they would actually mourn that person as though they died because they would be rejected by men in the same way that Jesus was. That's why in Matthew chapter five, he says, blessed are you when men revile you and they cast insults at you on account of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Because, you know, walking with Jesus increasingly in our culture is not the popular thing. And you know what? At the end of the day, I really don't care. He's all of God. In Acts chapter 17, uh, Luke, Dr. Luke writes, In him, in him, we live and move and have our being. Wonderful passage there. Verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and we will love him. I will love him and manifest myself to him. I have a question. Of course, and, and you know, I've told people that have come to me and said, well, Pastor John, what's God's will in my life for whatever? And, and there have been times where I, I will just smile and say, you know, I have a hard enough time figuring out what his will is for my life, let alone yours. And yet, it's true that we want to know God's will. Is it enough to know God's will on a matter? Psalm 143 verse 10 says this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. 
Lead me in the land of uprightness. Yes, it's important to, to want to discern, to know God's will in our lives for whatever it is we're dealing with. He doesn't always reveal his will. But where we do understand his will, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, it's far more important to do his will than to simply know his will. Because one of them is passive, the other is active. And he calls us to an active faith. Show me your faith, I'll show you my works. That's doing his will. So when he says, I'll manifest myself to them, what the word means simply is it means to reveal myself, to make myself plain to them. I will show them. And so Judas in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, I like that John inserts that. Judas, oh, by the way, not Iscariot, because he already left, uh, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And you know what? That's a really good question. Again, take away the cross, take away the resurrection, take away the spiritual discernment that would come with the Holy Spirit, and Judas is thinking of a physical manifestation. How are you going to show yourself to me and not to everybody else? I mean, because if you show yourself to me, everybody else can see. And that's, it's a very simple, it's a very honest, and I think it's kind of a precious question because Judas is just being real. He's, he's reaching, he's trying to grasp these things that Jesus is laying out. He hasn't gotten there yet. And yet he really wants to know. He's really trying to connect with Jesus on this stuff. So, so I don't understand this. You know, it's like you know, when they said, well, you know, where are you going? Show, give us directions. We don't know where you're going. I, I, we need some directions. They thought it was a physical place. Well, he thinks that this is a, a physical manifestation. And it's not. Uh, it, it would be, in limited sense, after the resurrection, Jesus never revealed himself in, as he bodily resurrected from that tomb, he revealed himself to 500. He revealed himself to his people. He never revealed himself to the religious leaders, to the unbelievers out there. He let them simply be hardened up. We talked about that. Revelation, divine revelation stops when you say, nope, I don't want it. I don't want to hear it. I don't, don't give me this Jesus stuff. I don't, I don't care. God will honor that. Very dangerous place to be. Conversely, if I do want to know, he will continue to reveal himself to me. And that's a beautiful thing. I, I think about in Luke chapter 8, we looked at that in our men's group on Tuesday night. We talked about the parable of the soils. It's called the parable of the sower, but uh, it's about the soils. There are four conditions of human hearts and, and how he, the, the sower goes out to sow the seed. And the seed is the word of God. And, and there are, the three are choked and killed and, and dies off. And nothing comes to fruition. And yet that one, the, the seed that falls on the fertile soil with on the good soil where it sends down a taproot and it gets firm hold and it begins to grow, that's the one that God honors. And the guys come to him and they ask him, well, what, what does that mean, Jesus? And, and he says simply this. And he goes on to tell them and he gives them the, the, the he unpacks the whole uh, parable, but he says, to you it's been given to know and to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to the rest it's in parables. In other words, you want to know? I'll show you. You don't want to know? It's going to be hidden from you. And he actually conceals truth from those who willfully don't believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says essentially the same thing. He says, we speak, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God ordained before the ages for our glory. 
which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's essentially saying that if you want to know, if you want to walk in the light, walk in the light as he is in the light. And that way, as John says in First John, there'll be no darkness in you. But if that's not where you're at, if you want to push against Jesus, you can. And he allows you to have a free will. And if you don't want divine revelation, guess what? You're not going to get it. And it, it, it just, it's amazing to me because, you know, this flies in the face. Uh, you don't see statements like that on the flannel graph in children's Sunday school, do you? Uh, you know, you don't want divine revelation? Fine, you're not going to get it. No, it, it but, but that's truly how he is. It's an aspect of how he is. It's an aspect of how he reveals himself. You want to know? It's always by faith. You want to know? You want to come to me by faith? I will give it to you. I'll give it to you, pressed down, shaking, overflowing. That's how much revelation you can have from me. If you don't, then you don't. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, interesting, the word our home, the word home there is the same one where he says in my father's house are many mansions, abiding places, same exact Greek word. So what's he saying in this? He's saying, we're going to set up housekeeping with you. If you love me, my Father and I will make our home with you. How? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity of God living within you. It's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all rolled into one. Three persons, one essence. And, and the Spirit's job is to reveal that. The Spirit's job is to drive it home to you. If, if there's a part in you this morning, even as his word goes out, that's going, yes, that's true. Yes, I want to hang on to that. That's the Holy Spirit prompting and working inside of you. I know it's not me. I learned that a long time ago. But I, I know that that's how God works. And, and it's a marvelous thing. That is the divine revelation coming through. So you don't want to know, that's fine. But if you do, guess what? I am going to take down every barrier. Every barrier. And I will actually come and live inside of you. And I will take up residence within you, my Father and I both. Because remember, Jesus said earlier in this chapter, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's not like, you know, we're on different planets here. That's another religion. But it, we're, it's the same. Yeah, some of you got that. But the point is, is it's the same God. And he says, I want to live inside of you. How close can I be to Jesus? That's closer than anything else. Closer than any human relationship. To have him actually living, residing in my heart, guiding the steps of my life, convicting me of sin, bringing me deeper, giving me divine revelation, allowing me to love in a way that I have no capacity to love because I'm a cranky guy left to myself. But you know, it, he does all of that. What does it cost us? Nothing. It's the gift of God. And that's what he says. What does he require of me? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with him. How do I carry that off? He empowers me to do it. I really just show up. It's like I said earlier. And he does the work. So, we, he says, I'll, take up, I'll make you my abiding place. We'll set up housekeeping inside of you. And it begs the question, I remember there's a book 
uh, written a few years back called Not a Fan. And it was a guy that he, a pastor that had been packing a big, huge mega church. And he realized that he'd been compromising his relationship with God in order to fill the place up. And and so he just changed his whole message. He wrote this book, Not a Fan. And he realized that he had been encouraging people to be fans of Jesus. What's a fan? An enthusiastic admirer. Sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, go team, go. What's a follower? Somebody who is a committed, deeply committed follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to allow him to have his way in my life. Not just sit on the sidelines, but to be in the game. And so that's what he wants to do in us. Is he says, if we love Jesus, it'll be shown in a genuine love for his word. And not a love that just admires his word, but obeys his word, that keeps his word. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't just sit on the sidelines, be involved. And it's not that that's what saves me, but that's the result. That's my response to the grace he has shed that he has poured out in my life and yours. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In John chapter 5, Jesus actually, this is sort of recap for the guys. He had already taught these guys this. But he's going back and he's recapping some of these core principles for them. Um, He says, and the Father himself who sent me had testified of me. He's talking to the religious leaders. He says, you've never neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because him uh, who he sent, him you do not believe. In other words, you don't believe it. You don't have his, you don't love me. You don't keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. The father is the one who is prompting Jesus. Jesus said, I don't do anything apart from the father. And so the people that are rejecting him are the people that are rejecting God. I remember when we looked at this passage, it was very clear that he's saying to these guys, look, if you're rejecting me, you've got to realize you're rejecting God. He told Judas the same thing in chapter 13. Judas, if you're rejecting me, you're rejecting God. And so he wanted to be very clear about this. The people that don't love him don't keep his words. How can they? His word is not in them. Uh, verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. He's saying, what he's saying is this. He's saying, I'm sending the advocate. It's the advocate, a helper, comforter, paraclete. Uh, remember, we talked about that earlier. It's a, it's a hard word to define. He's the one that will meet you in your need. He's the one who will bring illumination. He's the one will, who will bring life to your dead body. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in the mercy that he has saved us and gave us his spirit. So he says, I'm sending this paraclete, one called to be by your side, and who will interpret these things and bring all things to your remembrance that I've said and to interpret to you the revelation that you already have, but have not yet understood. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He knows these guys don't get it. And, and, you know, I've heard people, I've heard preachers kind of pick on them for not getting it. No, it is totally understandable they don't get it. And it's in the same way that it's totally understandable for me in my thick-headedness that sometimes I don't get it. 
And yet he wants to bring further revelation. How does he do that? By his Holy Spirit and through his word. The second gift he's given these guys in verse 27, peace. I leave with you my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he says what he said in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled and neither let it be afraid. So the peace that he's talking about here, this, this second gift that he imparts to these guys in this chapter, first is the gift of his Holy Spirit and then connected that, his peace. The only way that his peace would be able to be appropriated would be through the power, through the working of the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, the peace that I leave you, there, he says, peace I give to you. That's a common thing. It's, it was actually sort of a benediction. In other words, in, and it, even today in Jewish culture, uh, you could say hello or goodbye with saying shalom. And that's peace. It simply means peace. Shalom, brother. Shalom. And, and, and so he's saying, shalom, I give to you. But then he makes a distinction because that's a common peace. It's a common salutation. And then he says, my peace I give to you. That's an uncommon salutation. And, and folks, they would need both in order to endure in the days and the years to come. I submit to you, we need both. We need both of these gifts. We need the Holy Spirit and we need his peace. If we don't have it, we are going to be a mess every time something broadsides us. Life gets hard. If you're not in a hard place this morning, I praise God. There are times, there are periods of respite that we go through. There are times that we go through where we are just simply kind of cruising along. But then there's that phone call, that, that letter, I mean, fill in the blank, that relationship, those financial issues, whatever it is, those things that come up. And we go through stuff, don't we? We go through a lot of trials. You can bank on his peace. It's a birthright. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, the peace of God. And he talks about the peace that passes understanding, the peace that bypasses your brain, that you can't figure out. And that's a good thing. It's a birthright. It's something that is guaranteed to us. But you have to have peace with God in order to have the peace of God. And that's a very clear distinction. The peace with God is the one that is afforded to us through salvation itself, through a relationship with Jesus the Messiah himself. And I will never have peace with God short of bowing the knee, being reconciled to him through his death. And then through the resurrection, the power that we're given, the power to live, part of that is through the Holy Spirit's working and the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And he wants to give you peace. Your circumstances might not change. That's why I started laughing in my office yesterday afternoon and I had a sweet peace going forward from there. I was like, wow, Lord, you're in this. You're, you're allowing these things to go on. That wasn't like a big crazy deal. I'm not you know, like holding out on you guys. I'm just saying that it was just something that it really struck me is that that's what he wants to do. He doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro every time some circumstance hits us. And yes, life broadsides us. And I pray, Lord, let the time 
that I react to those circumstances be shortened to the time that I respond to those circumstances with your peace, with just trusting you've got this, trusting my life is in your hands, trusting this life is a vapor. It's here for a moment. It's gone. And, and you know, I, it, this old guy that used to, that he was one of the guys that uh, was sort of a mentor very early in my life. And he had a stutter. He came out of World War II and he had this speech impediment. And, and he, he sounded, do you guys remember who Foster Brooks was? He sounded a lot like him. He had this, 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 this stutter, and he would try, and he, and he was like, he look at me, see, John, in a hundred years, it's not going to m- m- matter. And, and I, would, I would just take that. I could still hear his voice in my mind, and I'm not trying to pick at his, his speech impediment, but I just remember him saying that, and, and he was constantly reminding me, look, in the, go big picture, John, in big picture. Look at the big picture. You're, these things that are blowing you away right now, big picture, they're not going to matter. They're not in, the, in the, the scheme of eternity. It's a blip. It's smaller than a blip. Don't get too carried away by this. And I have to remember that. Why? Because Jesus wants me to have not just the peace that the world gives. That's a peace that's dependent on circumstances. It's a peace that he gives. It is transcendent. It is over and above any circumstance I face. You mean you want to give me peace in the middle of the storm? Yes, it's exactly what I want to do. That's what will be the difference between your house being built on me, built on the rock, and built on the sand. Then you're blown away by every circumstance that comes along. And and great will be the house's fall and not being built around me. Because part of that is his peace. It's a wonderful thing to walk in. And there are times where because I have this puny little flesh thing that's always nagging at me, that I'll have this peace and I'll be, well, you really shouldn't be having peace right now, John. You, really, you should be stressing out about this. No, I'm just going to have peace. No, no, no. And this whole diet, it's like, just get out of here, Satan. Just get behind me. I just want to have peace. And it's not dependent on my circumstances. It's dependent on him. Verse 28, you have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. They would get it, but they wouldn't get it right now. He says, my Father is greater. He's greater than the Son in position, uh, but the Father is not greater than the Son in essence or being. They are both equally God. They are co-equal. So when he says my father is greater, this is a, that's one that cultic groups and you know fringy ones want to take out of context. Yes, his father is greater in position, but not in essence and, and not in being. They are one God. Verse 29, and now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe. That's always the point of the prophetic word. It's not to get up and put on a show. It's to to validate the message, to validate the messenger. I'm telling you guys, you don't understand it now, but you'll remember because part of the work of my spirit is he'll bring it to your remembrance. And that's what he's going to say here is that you will get it. You will understand this. So don't let your hearts be troubled over this. It'll make sense to you. It's coming. And he's trying to encourage these guys still. He says, I'll no longer talk with you much in verse 30 uh, with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. You know, it's just, I find it fascinating because 
when Jesus told the religious leaders, the guys that were getting ready to, to, to crucify him, uh, and that as he spoke these words, they were dealing with Judas and, and you know, giving him the money and, and setting the whole thing up. Um, those very guys... Um, they would be the ones that would put him on the cross. And Satan wanted to get Jesus on that cross. He said, you're of your father, the devil. Remember that? Here in this gospel. And yet, what would happen in that? Go back to the very first prophecy back in Genesis. Talk about the prophetic word. He says, there will be one that comes from you that will save the people. And I'm paraphrasing. But he says, and, and you... Uh, he will, you will bruise his heel. In other words, it's talking about the cross. But he will crush your head. Satan wanted to get Jesus on the cross. And yet through the cross, Jesus triumphed over him and crushed the dominion, the power of Satan in this world. Fascinating. He says, he has nothing in me. Um, the ruler of this world is coming. And it's telling because whose world is it? It belongs, still belongs to Satan. Jesus purchased the right to take it back, but he has not yet taken it back. He will, uh, in the book of Revelation, we're going to study that, where he takes the title deed to the earth back. And at that, that point, the wrath of God is poured out in significant measure upon the earth. And yet, yes, this, we live in an unfriendly world because we are not the owners of this world. The powers of darkness that have seized control of this, that took control at the garden, in the garden, Man surrendered dominion to this world, to Satan himself. And it has remained in his grip. And yet greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. A wonderful promise in that. He says that he has nothing in me because Jesus, he who knew no sin, was about to become sin, that we could become the righteousness of God. He has no part in me. There is nothing that Satan could hook onto in Jesus' life. He was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. There was nothing that Satan could get a purchase in his life over. But he knows he's coming. Verse 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. You know, he's telling these guys, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then what he says here, as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Why? Because he loves the Father. He is modeling the very same thing that he is giving to the men. He is going to go to the cross because, remember in the garden, and we'll get to it, he says, Father, if there's any other way, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was perfectly obedient. He, he, we're told in Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And that he was perfectly obedient to the Father. And when he says, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, he who keeps my commandments will show his love for me. He's doing the same thing that he's telling us to do. And so he says, the Father gave me commandments, so I do. So he's modeling the love that he has through his obedience. And when he's telling these guys that, to love one another the way that I've loved you, again, he's carrying that out. He's shoring that up. It's not just an empty spiritual principle. It's something that 
he really put his own mind to it, his own life, and modeled for us, as he so often does. He's not giving his men or you and I empty advice, but words of life. And when he says, arise, let us go from here, uh, it's not until chapter 18, verse 1, that they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. We're only at the end of chapter 14. And so there are three more chapters. It doesn't say exactly where they were. Uh, many people will conjecture that they began to walk through town because this is up, as we mentioned at the beginning of this discourse, it's way up on the top of Mount Zion, which is the highest point in Jerusalem, and they would have to walk down through the city and across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was just up the other side on the Mount of Olives. So it would take them a while to walk there, but uh, I personally believe, and where we're going to look at it from, is that I believe that Jesus went up on the roof. I've uh, been up on the roof of the upper room, and uh, and that time of year it would have been spring. The grapes would have been, they had uh, big arbors that covered the roofs to give shade because it's a very sunny area, very warm area. And it was a full moon because it was Passover. So it would have been this full moon, this beautiful evening, unless it was raining, but uh, it still would have been light and probably light enough for them to look down on the Temple Mount. And as he talks, he, he begins down, we'll look at it in 15, at the beginning of chapter 15, he says, I am the vine and you're the branches. And my father's the vine dresser, and I cannot help but think that as they walked up onto that roof, they'd already been pruning back, because you could practically watch grapes grow. I mean, they grow so fast. And, and Chuck's going, yeah, yeah, because he has a lot of grapes at his place. And, and I mean, they grow so fast that they have to be pruned back as they go, or you just end up with a lot of leaves and no fruit. So as the, he gets up there on the roof, I, I, I'm just convinced in my own mind, and I know this is extra biblical, but just by way of color and background, I, I'm convinced that he was pointing to the ground and the fresh trimmings from the grapes and saying, you know, I'm the vine. You're the branches. My father's a vine dresser, and he does a lot of pruning, and we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but here, as he wraps up, uh, actually being inside the upper room, May have been they hung around for a while. I mean, I don't know. I know what it's like to try to get 11 or 12 people out the door. <laughs> Sometimes I can say we're leaving and it's not for another 45 minutes that we leave. But uh, suffice it to say that he knows where he was and I'm good with that. So anyway, let's pray, folks. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your promises are yes and amen, that we can bank on them. And as you've promised your Holy Spirit to us, we thank you, Lord, because we would be lost without him. As you've promised us your peace, I pray for each one in this room right now, Father, that if we've been in turmoil, if we have been upset by circumstances, or if we're carrying a heavy burden, that we would be those people as you beckon to in Matthew chapter 11, that we could come to you when we're weary and we're heavily laden, and that we could cast our cares upon you, that we could give you our burdens, that we would uh, share that yoke of burden with you because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so thank you, Lord, that um, the work that you're doing in us, you haven't given up on us and that you are long-suffering and patient and that you simply love us and have good plans for us. Help us to cooperate with the work of your Holy Spirit in the week ahead and that as you work, that you would find people who are simply willing, willing to risk uh, and to lay down the stress, to lay down the stuff, to simply experience the peace you give. 
And thank you, Father. We pray for us for the rest of this day. We ask that you'd work in us and through us. And as we have some fellowship now, we pray your blessing upon it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.